If you have your copy of God's Word, would turn with me to Psalm chapter 78. A few weeks ago, a dear saint and family friend reached out to Jenny and I to ask for help uh, to encourage some fellow members of her church to think more biblically about the human condition. You see, someone had posted in a group chat of the Bible study the Luke Bryan song, Most People Are Good. And the group was in general agreement with the sentiment. For our friend, an alarm bell went off almost immediately. How could Bible-believing Christians think people are generally good? In 2017, scientificamerican.com published the findings of a study on how people viewed themselves in comparison to others. This is what they reported, and I quote, When comparing ourselves versus other people, we tend to rate ourselves more highly on a host of positive measures. This finding is sometimes called the self-enhancement effect. This self-enhancement effect is most profound for moral characteristics. While we generally cast ourselves in a positive light relative to our peers, above all else, we believe that we are more just, more trustworthy, and more moral than others." End quote. Whether it's a scientific study or anecdotal, the winds of our culture are blowing with the sentiment that people are generally good. However, biblical history lovingly confronts us with the truth about our fallen state. Our passage this morning sets a contrast between human sinfulness and God's glorious grace in such a way that the realities of both are enhanced and given clarity. The author of Psalm 78 records particular events in the history of Israel as a way of exhorting God's people toward greater obedience and fidelity to God. There is a saying, perhaps you can finish it for me, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. I propose that the biblical version of this saying might be those who forget the God of history will fail to put their hope in him. The psalmist intentionally selects particular historical events and arranges them to contrast God's incomparable grace with humanity's astounding depravity. Standing as we do on the other side of the cross, Psalm 78 points us forward to the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, putting a new heart in his people through the finished work of Christ. So this sermon this morning has two main points. Number one, remember God's wondrous grace in history. And number two, remember human depravity in history. Remember God's wondrous grace in history and remember human depravity in history. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse one. A maskil of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children 
that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk in his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. The opening section of the psalm summarizes the author's aim for remembering the God of history. Asaph was one of three Levitical singers David installed to lead Israel in worship at the tabernacle. He is credited with writing or contributing to 15 psalms in the Psalter. According to 2 Chronicles 29 verse 30 and Matthew 13 verse 35, Asaph was a prophet not only declaring God's mighty works of the past, but pointing God's people forward to a greater fulfillment of his promises. Asaph opens in verse 1 with a prophetic call to give ear and to incline your ears. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Everything he is about to say is to be heeded. God's mercy and grace cannot be disregarded indefinitely. It will either be a refreshing spring of life to the hearer or the heaping of burning coals on one's head. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Well, Asaph's history lesson in Psalm 78 is of infinite importance. If you're here this morning or listening online, You're hearing it this morning, not merely because it was planned in a preaching schedule, but because because God in his kindness knows you need to hear it. In verse 4, he exhorts the hearer to be faithful to proclaim God's grace to the next generation. Asaph's exhortation is rooted in God's command in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. Fathers and mothers are to have God's law on their hearts, so much so that they are to speak of it to their children all the time when they sit in their house, when they walk by the way, when they lay down at night, and when they rise up each day. And Moses gives the reason why this command is so crucial in Deuteronomy 6, verse 12. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord. To remember the God of history is an ordinary means of grace. God's people are to speak and live God's word before one another. But great care must be given to this task because the default setting of sinners is to forget. However, the responsibility did not rest solely with parents. Israel was a covenant community comprised of individuals, families, clans, and tribes that bore a corporate responsibility of proclaiming God's wondrous works to one another through the daily rhythm of offerings and sacrifices and worship. Their entire way of life was shaped by God's word and his commands. In verse 5, Asaph highlights the substance of what must not be forgotten, God's redemptive covenant relationship with Israel. Verse 5 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. After redeeming Israel, God graciously entered into a covenant relationship with them. 
It says that he established and appointed. God is the initiator. Israel is the recipient. The testimony referenced here points back to the covenant ceremony of Exodus 24, where each party took vows to keep their side of the covenant. God's devotion to them is presented in marital terms. And so for the remainder of the Old Testament, to reject God is to commit spiritual adultery. Notice that in verses 4 through 8, the concern is not merely for the generation among them in their day, but future generations as well. Read it with me again. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart is not steadfast, whose spirit is not faithful to God. By God's grace, the goal of discipling the next generation is stated in verse 7 and makes clear that saving faith is comprised of three primary ingredients. First, personal trust. Second, knowing the true gospel. And third, and increasing obedience to God's commands. So those three ingredients, again, are a personal trust, which is based on knowing the true gospel, lived out through increasing obedience. Now, Asaph highlights no less than four generations in these verses. I've often heard people comment that our national debt is so out of control that it's going to impact negatively generations to come. As true as that may be, Psalm 78 asks us to consider something far weightier than the financial security of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Will we be faithful to pass down a pure gospel and cling to it so zealously that our children and grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments? So I ask us this morning, how are you personally involved in passing on God's word to the coming generations? This is a responsibility of the entire church, not only to parents and the children's ministry. Last year, we spent a lot of time trying to understand and strive toward being a church that is one family partnering with parents to show the next generation the way of Christ. As a father, during this pandemic, I really miss the many points of contact that our church family normally has with our children to partner with us in this task. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard season. The restrictions make it challenging to continue discipling and being discipled. I praise God for the many efforts that continue through the week in homes and parks and anywhere it's safe to meet But let's also embrace our ongoing responsibility to come alongside parents and teens to invest the word of God. 
Whether you're a parent, grandparent, an older saint with no grandchildren, be intentional to teach, share, obey, and love God's word amongst your church family. The efforts we make today will be used of the Lord for generations to come. God's word will not return void. You may have to be creative during COVID-19, but let's keep this command in our sights nonetheless. In verse 8, he contrasts the outcome of verse 7 with the failure of of previous generations. He says, And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Asaph's song presents a two-sided coin to intent, to a ma- in mag- intended to magnify the grace of God and human sinfulness. He uses previous generations as a parable. The contrast to putting one's hope in the Lord is seen most clearly in, in generations who came before, who in spite of witnessing the wonders of God, rejected and rebelled against him. Verses 9 through 11 summarize how this hardness of heart was displayed by previous generations. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Even as God promised he would fight for them if they would walk in obedience to his commands, We are clearly told in verse 10 that they did not trust and obey him. The author uses two key words in verse 11 that are foundational to understanding the history of Psalm 78. The words forgot and the word wonders. These words provide the substance of our two main ideas this morning. So let me remind us of those. Number one, remember God's wondrous grace in history. And number two, remember human depravity in history. First, let's remember God's wondrous grace in history. Psalm 78 is a song recounting the history of God's incomparable grace to Israel. The song follows a pattern with each verse declaring God's gracious wonders, followed by Israel's sinful rejection of God, which in turn brings about God's righteous judgment. And that cycle continues more than once. Yet even in judgment, God demonstrates still more grace. Asaph uses the word wonders in verse 4, 11, 12, and 32. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. Verse 12, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt in the fields of Zoan. And verse 32, in spite of all this, they sinned. They, uh, despite his wonders, they did not believe. The word conveys the idea that God had done the seemingly impossible on behalf of God's people. Each episode in the song is intended to amplify the wondrous or seemingly impossible nature of God's acts on their behalf. His grace is immense and is to evoke faith and trust. While God's glorious deeds are miraculous in nature, we aren't to miss the reality that all of God's activity for the good of his people is utterly undeserved. And they prove it at every turn. 
yet he continues to give grace upon grace. A quick survey of the passage will make this point. Starting in verse 12 again, in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, he, uh, in, the field of, in the fields of Zoan, Starting in verse 12, the author reminds them of God's redeeming work to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. The most powerful nation on earth was brought to its knees by the sovereign God of the universe. No earthly king can defy the king of kings. Verse 13, he divided the sea and let them pass through and made the water stand like a heap. God parted the Red Sea opening up a way of escape for his people when they were pinned against the Egyptian army in an impassable body of water. In verse 14, he led them with a cloud in the daytime and all the night with a fiery light. God was with his people like a shepherd, guiding and protecting them in the wilderness. He also provided abundantly for their physical needs. Verses 15 and 16, he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Down to verse 23. He opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Verse 25. He sent them food in abundance. In the desert wilderness, talk about a paradox. Verses 26 and 27 highlight God's provision of meat For them, in a miraculous act, causing the winds to blow favorably, they had meat in such abundance that it rained on them like dust and the sand of the seas, verse 27. Even God's judgment is marked by grace, verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Asaph then reminds them of the judgment he poured out on the Egyptians in verses 44 through 51. Israel was no less deserving of God's wrath in Egypt. And yet here again, uh, they have forgotten that the wrath that was withheld from them was unleashed on their oppressors. We noted God's gracious acts in verse 12 through 16 a moment ago. In verse 55, God drove out the nations before them in Joshua's day to give them the land he promised. One commentator summarized it well. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, their liberation was impossible. When they were trapped at the Red Sea, escape was impossible. Without food and water in the wilderness, survival was impossible. God repeatedly did the impossible, and Israel repeatedly forgot. Now, the psalmist doesn't only present God's glorious deeds. He contrasts God's grace with Israel's sinfulness. Just as a light that shines brighter in total darkness, the glorious grace of God shines brighter and more brilliantly against the backdrop of human depravity. Which brings me to our second point this morning. Remember human depravity in history. If you've ever watched a movie in a movie theater, you know that the experience is vastly different than watching the same movie on your television at home. There are speakers running up and down both sides and the back of the theater that creates an immersive experience in the world of the movie. 
unless you have surround sound at home, you lose that immersive experience through a single speaker. In the same way, if we only focus on God's grace and love in Scripture, the experience will be shallow. We won't grasp how wondrous God's grace truly is. In that sense, Psalm 78 is composed to come through in stereo. I think this is why Asaph repeatedly contrasts God's gracious acts with Israel's sinful rebellion against him. Now, depravity is a word that theologians use uh, to refer to our sinful nature or our indwelling sin. It conveys the biblical reality that we are slaves to sin. It's our default setting. By nature, our minds, hearts, and wills have so been affected by sin that our thoughts, our desires, and our choices are contaminated by it. For reference, Genesis 65 presents a succinct and sobering expression of this reality. Here's what Moses says there. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A few other passages you might jot down to study this further on your own. Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. Each presents this sobering idea that we are sinful in our nature. Our passage this morning immerses us in this reality. Asaph intends to remind us of our depravity by giving a history lesson with Israel as exhibit A. Like the chorus to a song, the refrain is repeated again and again. We saw God's gracious acts in verses 12 through 16. In light of God's wonders in Egypt, the parting of the sea, his guiding presence in the wilderness, providing water from the rock, what is Israel's response? Verse 17 says this, yet they sinned still more. When God opened the doors of heaven and rained down bread from heaven, when he provided meat to satisfy their craving in verses 23 through 29, verse 32 says this, in spite of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Though God had compassion on their sin, overlooking and atoning it and restraining his anger and sparing their lives, verse 40 says, how often they rebelled against him. In verse 41, they tested God again and again. Once more, down in verses 42 through 55, Asaph reminds them of his saving work in Egypt, leading them to safety through the wilderness, then driving out their enemies and giving them possession of the land. But in verse 56, we read this, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. Isn't it striking how a people who experienced such marvelous and miraculous things 
would outright reject and despise God. And yet they did just that over and over again. One commentator said, one miracle for their relief seemed only to awaken distrust in God's power and goodness in another matter. Brothers and sisters, we should never underestimate sin's grip on the human heart. It is deadly. Is there a besetting sin in your life that you're ignoring? Is there an area of your life that continually trips you up in your walk with God? Do you trust God's grace to not only forgive, but to enable you to put that sin to death? Brothers and sisters, hear this warning from Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Let us not take sin lightly, but pursue the means of grace God has given in confessing our sin to one another that we might walk in the light with others to expose sin and put it to death. Perhaps today or this week, you ought to seek someone out to loosen the grip of sin on your heart. Now, someone might object, well, that's Israel. They have a horrible track record. It's not fair to take their example and apply it so broadly to all of humanity. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 when he looks at the same history that Psalm 78 records for us. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God's relationship with Israel serves as an example. It reveals who God is and what he is like, as well as who we are and what we are like. Rather than see ourselves as different or better than the Israelites, we ought to see ourselves in them. They are a mirror for us. Psalm 78 helps us identify four characteristics of depravity, actually five. First, depravity leads to forgetting God. Depravity leads to forgetting God. This is what we read in verses 7, 11, and verse 42. We need to understand what the author means when he uses the word forget. He is not saying that they forgot the works of God like they forgot where their car keys were or where their reading glasses were put down. It's more like forgetting your wedding anniversary or your children's birthday. You didn't actually forget that you had a child, right? It simply wasn't important enough for you to remember. 
The word forget here means to cease to care or to ignore. This is willful disregard for the creator, not amnesia. What this also means is that God's call to remember is not merely a mental exercise, but a matter of obedience. To remember God is to love him and to walk in his ways. The fruit of remembrance is increasing obedience in the life of the believer. So let me ask us again. Are there any areas of your life not marked by increasing obedience? Forgetting is not a passive act, but the willful neglect of God and his grace. Pursue remembering him daily. So depravity leads to forgetting God. Second, depravity tests God out of love for self. Depravity tests God out of love for self. Let's see where he describes that in our passage. Verses 18 through 20. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Go down to verse 41. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. And down to verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. To test carries the idea of making God prove himself as though he answers to us and does our bidding. This isn't a sort of doubt that God welcomes when someone comes with a struggling faith. Jesus welcomes weak or struggling faith. Like the father of the little boy who was plagued by demons in Mark 9, who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. God welcomes this kind of doubt and struggle. No, this is a demanding of God to satisfy my cravings because desire is my God. Paul describes it like this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In the face of wondrous grace, Israel did not love God and walk in obedience to him. They felt entitled to his goodness and grace and demanded more and more. Depravity is revealed by our love of what God can give us instead of loving God himself. We demand that God submit to us rather than submitting ourselves to him fully by faith. Third, depravity is revealed by unbelief. Return to verse 22 with me. Because they did not believe in God, and did not trust in his saving power. And again in verse 32, in spite of all this, they sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. 
Despite clear evidences of his power and goodness, Israel lacked faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Israel did not draw near to God, though he made himself available to them and blessed them again and again. I've heard some say that if God would just give them a sign or do some miracle, they would believe. Perhaps you've heard the same. However, Psalm 78 shows just how untrue that really is. This is the human condition. Despite what might be clearly seen, sinful humanity willfully rejects God and suppresses the truth. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you don't consider yourself to be a Christian this morning, is your reason for unbelief centered on expectations that you have for God? Do you question his goodness or doubt his presence due to circumstances in your life? The Bible would have us examine our lives honestly and see that it's our sin that's the ultimate reason we willfully reject God. Don't be stubborn like Israel, unwilling to let the let God's word reveal your sinfulness and your need for Christ. Psalm 78 so clearly demonstrates that it is not a lack of evidence that keeps people from trusting the Lord. It is our sinful, unbelieving hearts. Depravity is revealed by unbelief. Fourthly, depravity does not fear the Lord. Verses 33 through 55. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Okay. On its face... It sounds like judgment has finally done the trick. Punishing Israel has now sobered them up to the reality of God's holiness and bringing about the repentance and faith that God requires. Until we get to verse 36 and verse 37. He continues, But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Now we see that Israel's response was just a pretense to get back on God's good side, as though he could be deceived. Far from desiring to be made right with God, Israel desired self-preservation and said what they had to in order to secure it. They did not fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They were only concerned with preserving their comfort to indulge their sinful passions more. 
Depravity reveals a lack of the fear of the Lord. Finally, depravity stores up God's judgment. Listen to the way God's wrath is described throughout the song. Verse 21, therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel. Verse 31, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Verse 33, so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. Verse 58, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. And verse 62, he gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. To do so would be against his very character and nature. Second Peter chapter three that we read earlier reminds us that a day of judgment is coming. Judgment by fire. God cannot and will not overlook sin. A tidal wave of God's judgment is coming for the guilty. Only those who are in Christ will be safe on that day. Well, we don't want to end there because that's not where Asaph ends. With God's wondrous grace now set in context against the darkness of human depravity and sin, the author closes the psalm by looking both backward and forward to God's most triumphal acts of grace. So go down to verse 69 with me. He built his sanctuary in the high heavens like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. If Psalm 78 was a court case against Israel to prove how undeserving they were to receive the riches of God's grace, you might expect the closing argument to put the nail in the coffin. Against the backdrop of God's wonders, Israel showed it deserved God's punishment and wrath. Asaph has made an extremely compelling case here. But he ends the song by pointing to the ultimate hope for sinful humanity. The audience of this psalm only has to look back at two events in their history to remember that God is more gracious than anyone can truly fathom. The building of the temple and the provision of David as king. In spite of Israel's track record, God established a permanent residence among his people in the building of the temple. Rather than abandoning them in light of their constant rejection, he doubles down and takes up residence among them. More than that, he gave Israel 
a king after his own heart who would shepherd and guide them according to his word. Though Israel's heart was not steadfast toward God, verses 8 and verse 37, his steadfast love for them endures forever. We know that David's rule and the temple did not last. They ultimately pointed toward a son of David who would sit on the throne forever and establish a better temple where God's spirit would indwell his people to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 78. Matthew chapter 13, verse 35, quotes Psalm 78, verse 2, where he says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David to establish God's kingdom and reveal God's perfect plan to overcome human depravity. Through repentance and faith, God promises to give his people a new heart, one that is inclined to remember and obey the Lord's commands, a heart that thirsts for him because he is the rock who pours out springs of living water, a heart that hungers for him because he is the true bread from heaven, a heart that understands that our greatest need is to be set free from not slavery in Egypt, but to sin and death. A heart that sees God's compassion on us in restraining his anger toward us by not destroying us, but by destroying his son on the cross in our place. A heart that knows Christ will bring us to a better country, a heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. A heart that is confident that one day, Jesus will put his adversaries to everlasting shame. Contrary to Luke Bryan's theology of man, most people are not good. We desperately need a new heart that will remember the wondrous grace of God in history and love him fully. If you know yourself not to know this Christ, I invite you to talk with me after the service or one of the other elders or a member that maybe you're sitting near. We would love to explain the hope of Christ that can overcome your sin and remove God's wrath from your life. Brothers and sisters, may our hearts long for Christ every day and combat the evil of sin that still wrestles with us in our old man, looking to the future with hope that Christ will one day come and set us free fully and finally from the wickedness of sin. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for demonstrating through all of history your incredible patience, your steadfastness of love, your kindness in planning and purposing for our redemption. Father, despite 
our willful rejection of you as our creator and as our judge. You sent Christ at just the right time in history to die for the wicked. Father, help us to take our sin seriously. Thank you for giving us Christ, our Savior, who absorbed and satisfied your wrath fully at the cross and who by your indwelling spirit gives us new hearts that we may love and follow you. Lord, would you glorify yourself through your people, the God of history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.